Welcome to Spin It, where the worst of times can become the best of times. I'm your host, Stephanie Malik, an award-winning crisis management expert and business consulting strategist. Along with my team of experts at S. Malik Enterprises, I have worked with thousands of high-wealth individuals and businesses over the last 25 years to create customized approaches for crisis management and business consulting to ensure they take their careers, relationships, and companies to the next level. On Spin It, we pursue purpose and passion, aspiring to uncover the true story behind every guest's successes and failures, removing the mistake behind what it takes to be truly successful from those that have actually done it. I'm chatting with executives and entrepreneurs all over the globe to understand how they turned obstacles into opportunities to grow not only themselves, but their businesses. I want to impact and inspire you and as many people as possible, not by blurting out the same old motivational phrases, but with the truth and authenticity behind real success, along with the roadmaps and methodologies it takes to get there. Whether it was a scandal, a broken business model, or simply navigating the noise, we want you to learn from our mistakes. It's all in how you spin it. Today, I'll be talking to retired professional basketball player and HBCU Heroes co-founder, George Lynch. George played for the legendary coach, Dean Smith, while at the University of North Carolina and helped lead the Tar Heels to a national championship victory. He was a first round pick in 1993 and went on to play in the NBA for 12 seasons from 1993 to 2005 with the Lakers, Grizzlies, Hornets, and played in the 2001 NBA Finals while a member of the Philadelphia 76ers. Today, George has taken his talents off the court. Well, kind of. He's coached a collegiate level and most recently co-founded HBCU Heroes. George and I first met when he reached out about launching his foundation, HBCU Heroes, which aimed to provide support to students at historically black colleges and universities. He noticed how underprivileged athletes were being disadvantaged simply by not having equal access to technology, which created a massive digital divide. When he learned that some of his players and 40% of minority families couldn't afford Wi-Fi and or computers to successfully complete distance learning classes during the pandemic, he knew he had to do something. That's when he spun it and found innovative ways to partner with corporate America to help support student athletes continue their education from home. We speak about what it takes to achieve excellence in sports, playing for the legendary coach, Dean Smith, the importance of equal access to opportunities, and his inspiring work in supporting historically Black colleges and universities. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome. We are so excited to have you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So this is going to be just a very casual conversation. Um, We met when we were talking about your foundation and just HBCU and like just how everything came together. And so I just had some questions about it and I wanted to just walk through First of all, your childhood. So talk to me about like how you grew up, um, how you got interested in basketball, and and eventually what got you into UNC. I grew up as a child in Roanoke, Virginia, a small town. Mother and father divorced at a young age. I think I might have been two. Don't even remember. Mother was remarried. So my stepfather introduced me to basketball. As a kid, I played all sports, uh, basketball, football. Tried to play baseball, but didn't like getting hit by the ball. I played soccer, but I didn't like running the entire time. So I played goalie. And outdoor sports was not my thing. It was, in you know, being in the Valley in Virginia, 
the winters are cold, wind is blowing. So I took to indoor sports basketball right around the ninth grade was when I decided that I was going to fully focus on, on basketball. Of course, just like any other low-income neighborhood, you know, you have friends that play when they get to the point where they can't make their high school team. They turn to being a drug dealer, standing on the corner, you know, smoking pot, doing stuff that kids normally get into if they don't have, you know, good family support system or have something to occupy their free time. A lot of it was mischievous stuff that led into kids getting felonies. And once you get a felony, your life is over. And, uh, you know, I was lucky enough. I was pretty good at, at athletics. You know, my stepfather and my father, although my mom wasn't married to either one by the time I was 10, they were both still in my life. If you met my father, he's about 6'6", 280 pounds. He's a big man. My stepfather was about 6'4", 6'5", big man also. So they kept me in line, unlike the rest of my my friends in the neighborhood did, didn't have father figures. So then after, you know, right around the ninth grade, you know, people started recognizing that I had a little gift in basketball, played varsity as a, my first year as a, as a sophomore, went to the state playoffs. My junior year, we ended up winning the state. Had a good group of guys that was in that basketball circle that we, we play AAU summer basketball all year round. Had great coaches in AAU and um, high school basketball. Right around after my junior year, we won the state championship and I started getting invited to, you know, all the top high recruit camps. And and then I decided to go away and play my the end of my junior year and my senior year. I went up to Flint Hill Prep in Northern Virginia, which was a great experience for me. It was tough. I was I was away from family, didn't have family members around, away from my, I have three sisters, uh, my mom and dad, you know, everybody, I could only see them every other weekend. My dad would come up and pick me up. So it was, it was challenging, but it was, it, it, it kind of, I want to say hardened me for uh, what was expected at Chapel Hill. You know, at the time I signed with North Carolina late, I was a late signer having that opportunity when coach Smith came into our practices and, and watched his practice as a high school player. Not many um, guys on my team had a uh, historic program like uh, UNC Chapel Hill. And when, when coach Smith walked into the gym, everybody on campus knew about it. So it was an exciting day. And so I was glad to give my, my schoolmates something excited to talk about. So that's great. Let's pause there for a second, because I heard a little bird told me you didn't even want to go to UNC. Is that right? Right, right. I was, um, well, you know, growing up as a kid, I was a big Lynn Bias fan. Uh, I wore number 34 in college because of Lynn Bias growing up, you know, high school, I wore 34, you know, watching him play. He was a very, very exciting player. Unfortunately, he, you know, overdosed and passed away a day after he was drafted by the Boston Celtics and in the Maryland Terps, they never recovered from it. Still to this day, I, you could probably say that they, they never recovered from it because they were exciting. One of the top teams in the ACC, you know, now they had to, they moved to the big 10, 
but you know, during those times that I was being recruited that those three years back in 80 would have been 85, 86, they were never able to recover from uh, his accident. What role, if any, did Dean Smith have in your decision to choose UNC? Going through the recruiting process, he was the only coach that didn't promise me playing time. He said, George, if you come here, you work hard, you do your schoolwork, you might play. And I took it as a challenge. You know, I was always told that I couldn't do something. I wasn't going to be good enough, you know, as a kid. And I wouldn't, you know, a lot of people say, well, you overachieved. I wouldn't say I overachieved, but I worked extremely hard at it. And I think my upbringing made me one of the toughest competitors out there. I wasn't, there was a lot of guys more talented than I was in my neighborhood. There was more guys more talented, even, you know, my playing days in the ACC and the NBA. But I had it in my mind that I was going to be in the best shape and I was going to outwork them. So I know that he didn't promise you playing time. Did he make any promises to your parents? Not at all. Only thing he promised, he said, he said, I'm, I'm going to make sure that your son graduates. And uh, he made me go to summer school every semester. <laughs> so, so, so George, that's, that's so interesting. So tell me like, what, how is your mom during this? Cause this is a big thing. Okay. You're not in a great neighborhood. You, you've said, you know, low income, you've said, were your friends when, when they didn't get on teams, they, you know, didn't make great choices. And now you have Dean Smith talking to your mom. What's your mom's feelings? Like, what is she saying to you? What is she saying to the coach? Well, he didn't, he didn't really, you know, it was funny because it's a crazy story and it had nothing to do with me choosing North Carolina. So my freshman year in in middle school, I decided that I was going to live with my father. My three sisters lived with my mom. Then my mom moved to Chapel Hill right around the time that I went away to Flint Hill Prep. So and it had nothing to do with me deciding on Chapel Hill. I, I, I knew I wanted to play in the ACC. Like I said, my, my top schools were Georgetown, Maryland, North Carolina, Virginia, and Virginia Tech. I didn't even take my five visits. I only took three. I went to Virginia Tech, Virginia, and Chapel Hill last. And one of the reasons I didn't choose Virginia because a lot of my friends – that I went to high school, everybody was going to Virginia. I had cousins and I wanted to, I wanted to do something different. So I chose Chapel Hill and it was a great decision. I I was, I mean, I was extremely happy that I had the opportunity to play there and go to school there. So my mom was living in Chapel Hill and she was working at Carolina Inn and my mom, she doesn't follow sports and she waited on coach Smith one day and that's how she met him, uh, because when he would come on visits, you know, I was up at prep school. I was up in Northern Virginia. So he would see me up there. And I don't even think I told him my mom was living in Chapel Hill at the time until I took a visit to Chapel Hill. And and like, again, it was a late signing. So that's this was right after the McDonald's All-American game, which is in April. And I was on campus in August. So that's how quick it happened. So it wasn't, it wasn't like they, they, I was highly recruited because they had JRE. They didn't know if JRE was going to go pro. 
they had Kevin Madden, Rick Fox was there. So to Coach Smith, I was really a backup plan or afterthought. He never said it that way, but they had four forwards in front of me. And a lot of times it's funny because when I go on these trips, it's like, well, if you go to Carolina, you're not going to play. But the thing was, JRE was from Virginia. Kevin Madden was from Virginia. Hubert Davis was from Virginia. So it was all the guys that was from Virginia was going to Carolina. And I didn't know Hubert Davis at the time. He was a year ahead of me. And uh, we didn't play each other in the uh, state playoffs. But it was just weird that I'd never – I saw – I did get a chance to see JRE when I was 15. He was playing in the Boo Williams, um, Boo Williams AAU circuit. And I was out of Roanoke, Virginia. And we – so our older team, which was 17s, 17s or 19s, played against JRE and them. And our coach took us to watch the game. That's cool. That's great. So I want to come back to Coach Smith in a second, but when you said something, it actually triggered me to ask you another question. You had so many people, so much comfort, so much safety in kind of your crew, if you will, heading off to Virginia Tech. And you chose at a very young age, and we both have kids. You have kids older than this age that you chose. I have kids older than this age that you chose. I don't know that my children would have made the same choice. They would have wanted to go where their friends were going. They would have wanted to go where their family was. I don't know that they would have actually chosen to go someplace else, especially after Flint Prep and you already being away for so long. Talk to me about that choice. Like, it had to be more than, oh, I just want a different experience. Talk to me more about what made you decide to be, again, away from family, friends, and everything familiar with you. Because I think that's such an incredible example right now for our children on making the right choice for them in their future and, and kind of stretch or reach, if you will. What made you make that decision? Well, when, when I was young, playing basketball gave me an opportunity to travel and see different places. Because I played basketball, and one of the reasons I chose the sport of basketball because I played football. You never got to leave the area. I played basketball at 15. AAU took me to Orlando. That was my first flight. And I was like, man, if I play basketball, I can travel. And I think that's what gave me opportunities to see other places. You know, Orlando. We went, I think we went to Little Rock, Arkansas. Not much to brag about, but Little Rock. But I got to leave the state. So seeing what Arkansas was about, seeing, you know, we went to Seattle, Washington, playing basketball. I had an opportunity to go to camp at Princeton University for the Nike Top 100 camp. Five star, I went to Pittsburgh. So I got to see other places and it intrigued me how other cultures, the way people live, the landscape, topography of what a different state looks like. So when I had that opportunity, I was like, man, I've seen pretty much all of Virginia. And my first choice was to go to Maryland. And I, that was, I couldn't go there. So having that opportunity to go to North Carolina, uh, the people on my visit was great. The, the guys, Rick Fox, King Rice, those guys treated me with open arms. They just made me feel comfortable. And then and then at the end, my mom and sisters were in Chapel Hill at the time. So I was like, well, I can't go to Maryland. I might as well go to Chapel Hill. 
<clears throat> that makes a lot of sense too, especially because, you know, they were so welcoming to you and your mom was here and your sisters were here. And I know your sisters did a great deal to keep you in line. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like playing for one of the most legendary coaches in basketball history? You know, now that, you know, when I look back on it as a youngster, I was always out playing sports, whether it's football, whatever season it was. And I would come home and my, my father would be watching the ACC, whether it was Carolina, Virginia, you know, you know, at that age, I remember coming in, sitting on the couch and Ralph Sampson was at Virginia. You know, you had Sam Perkins, Michael Jordan at North Carolina. And my stepfather was a big Carolina fan. And he, and he was a big Carolina fan because of Charlie Scott, you know, Coach Smith bringing him in as the first black. And that, for a lot of black uh, men, Coach Smith giving Charlie Scott that opportunity to play in the ACC. And I think my, my father respected Coach Smith for that just because he took that chance. So he was a big Carolina fan. And, you know, at the time, I'm, I think I might have went to two college basketball games before I got to Carolina. And one was at UVA and the other game was in Chapel Hill. So it wasn't like I was I was a big fan. I was just playing basketball, being a kid, enjoying myself. And then when I had the opportunity to go to Carolina, it all came full circle. My stepfather would say, you know, we would just talk about, remember we would sit on the couch and watch those games? Although I had other things on my mind at 15 and 14, I did remember those moments sitting on the couch watching the games in the ACC tournament. So it didn't really hit you until much later what how legendary Dean Smith actually was. Yeah, yeah. It hit me when 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 I was in practice, he came on campus at Flint Hill Prep. And we've had, you know, we had great players come through. I mean, it was tons of college coaches. Bobby Crimmins, John Thompson, Lefty Giselle. If you had a top five power five program, those coaches came through. They knew who Stu Vetter was in his program at Flint Hill. On my team, I had Aaron Bain. He went to Villanova. Rand I played with Randolph Childers. He played at Wake. And they were all top 25 players. So there was coaches coming in all the time. But when Coach Smith came in, it was a different feeling. I mean, he was like God. He was the guy that everybody wanted to see. Everybody wanted to get his autograph, take pictures. And he had a great relationship with my high school coach. And my high school coach, he didn't, Stu didn't, Coach Vetter did not influence guys to go to a certain program. He did it the right way. He said, look, it's your choice. You got to go to school there. You got to practice and you got to, you got to live on that campus. So he allowed us to make that decision. But when Coach Smith came on campus, it was, everyone wanted to see him, meet him, say that they saw him. So, and then that's when I realized there's something special about Coach Smith. But, you know, being a young kid, you just, I didn't understand the magnitude and the, the things that Coach Smith did off the court. I mean, he, was, he didn't boast about what he tried to do with bringing Charlie Scott in, his accomplishments. You would have never known it. Even as a player, and I spent four years with him, he wanted us to be successful. And it didn't matter if we won or lost. He never talked about wins and losses. He just prepared us 
for any situation in a game. He talked to us about life on campus. I remember my sophomore year, we were trying to get the Black Culture Center in Chapel Hill. And to bring, it wasn't like today where you got social media, people got phones, they got Twitter, Facebook, they can post things. So he said, listen, if you're going to be a part of something and don't do it because your friends are encouraging you to do it, do your research, find out what it's about and see if you agree. And at the time we were trying to get a, every other community on campus had a place to go, but the black students didn't have a place on campus that they can go and be together and talk about issues. So we were trying to get the Sonia Haynes stone center built and students were protesting on campus. You know, of course they wanted the basketball players to be involved. So I had a friend that, that asked me if I was support and, and walk, in the protest. And I say, yeah. And, but first I went to coach Smith and made sure that it wasn't going to be during the time of practice. And he encouraged us to be involved on campus. He wanted us to be a part of the student body. And that was the, that was the great thing about Chapel Hill. Even today, when I meet someone, whether they went to Chapel Hill when I was there or before or after me, it's like family. Yeah, that's amazing. I am obviously, you know, we just moved from San Francisco and I just have found the community so incredibly warm and inviting. And, and really they, they kind of, they want to learn, like they want to know about you. People make eye contact, they sit down, they talk to you, they have conversations and it's just, it's a very welcoming and very encouraging feeling. So that's awesome. Talking about life lessons with Dean Smith, what are some of the key takeaways for playing for this gentleman for so long and, and, and any life lessons that he taught you that you apply now, maybe today in your life or with the kids? Well, uh, you know, if you look back in Coach Smith's teams, he made sure that his teams were represented from all parts of the country. When I played, we had a, I had a teammate from Germany. I had a teammate from Holland. I had a teammate from New York, California. Texas, of course, Virginia. He just didn't recruit, like, I'm just going to recruit all kids from North Carolina. He had at least one or two representatives from just about every region in the country. Pete Chilcutt was from Alabama. So from Alabama to New York, from Virginia, East Coast to California, we have representation from those states. And that taught us that, you know, we may be the same color, but there are differences on how we were raised depending on what part of the country we were brought up, brought in or, uh, or another country. And it was great because uh, Hemet Rildo from Germany was probably one of my closest teammates. I was the best man in his wedding. And uh, that's what Coach Smith, you know, he didn't force it on us. But he kind of put us in those situations to, okay, we play basketball in the South. Let's go play up North in New York and just see the different cultures. So he he wanted us to be uh, well-rounded student-athletes once we left campus. So well-rounded, but he had a special way of connecting you guys. So the connection, just like you said, from so many vast backgrounds, so many different upbringings, so many cultural differences, he was heavily influential in connecting his team and creating this remarkable chemistry. Talk to me about 
what he did to create this connection within your team? You know, although we all came from different backgrounds, we we all were a part of the team in different ways. Some guys started, some guys played a lot of minutes, some guys didn't play at all. They were walk-ons and, you know, role players at the end of the bench. He treated us all the same. We all went to nice restaurants together. We all got to order off the same menus. We all stayed in the same hotels. And he showed us how to, you know, I can be a starter playing major minutes, doing all the interviews, but he also made sure that I was humble enough to bring my teammates in who didn't get a chance to play or the walk-on who was coming to practice every day, working just as hard as me, but never got to play. And he made me appreciate those walk-ons just by reminding us that all 15 men on this team has a responsibility to make each one of us better people. And he never let us forget that. When we had to sign autographs, everybody on the team signed autographs. There was no special treatment for myself or Eric Montross or Donna Williams or Derek Phelps. If there was 500 autographs to sign, we had to sign all 500, just like the 10th and 11th, 12th man on the bench. So it was, it was, you know, it was a great experience. I mean, he didn't treat me any special. You know, I got the same punishment when I was late for class or late for practice as, as any other player. And what was that punishment? Well, I didn't get many of them because he only had to make me run once. <laughs> and then when you when you ran, did the entire team run or just you? Just me. Okay. I remember my <laughs> freshman year coming into Carolina. I was highly recruited. I was one of the top rebounders. I was known for rebounding and my inside play and my defense. And I'm in practice. In the every practice, we had a practice plan and a scouting report and emphasis of the day things like that and and I think the this particular practice rebounding was emphasis box out so you know I had an instinct for timing the basketball when it was going to come off where it was going to go and I didn't box out so you had you had these managers around the court and you had assistant coaches and their job was to say if you miss the box out, if you, whatever the emphasis was, you know, make three passes, cut without the ball, whatever, the, whatever Coach Smith wanted to teach today, their job was to call it out. So if I missed the box out, George missed the box out. And you in the middle of the, as a player, you know, they say, do you hear the fans and all that? You don't really hear it. You just reacting and playing on instinct. So I'm playing. And I, to me, I had a great practice. And I guess throughout the course of practices, I missed my box out assignment more than others. But although I got the rebound, I just didn't box out. So he he stressed it, there could be a game where one person misses an assignment and it costs us the game. And believe me, we won many a games because people missed assignments on the other team. So I'm in practice and I swear. This was, I thought as a, as a as a college freshman, this is my best practice. I'm getting every rebound. I'm playing well. I'm scoring. I'm playing defense. I'm stealing the ball. My team is winning. 
we get on the end of practice and Coach Smith says, whoever the manager was, I, I think we had JJ. I remember JJ being a manager. I don't think she called me out, but one of the managers called me out and said, well, George missed the most box outs. So I had to put this weight vest on and run. So he, he would stop, you know, there were certain drills throughout practice. So back then you could practice for three hours or maybe four hours. So we had been through a long, this was a long practice. So we could have been halfway. We was about, I'll say a third way through practice. So they used to have these weighted vests and you seen the Smith Center. I had to run every step in the Smith Center with a 20 pound weight vest on. After a three or four For hour practice. Yes. And it was, and he didn't play. So it was a manager. Listen, Coach Smith knew everything. Well, I wouldn't say he knew everything. I felt that Coach Smith knew everything that players or what's going on on campus. I mean, if I went to Franklin Street, underage, had a drink at a bar, he would know about it. It's so funny you t- you say this, and like I've heard this from so many people. It was like I've heard this from so many people saying it was literally like he knew so many people in so many places that there was nothing he did not know about his players' campus life, home life, athletic life. And even if he didn't say it, even if he didn't bring it up, he knew it. And it would somehow come up at a later time whenever it was the most convenient. So you're like the fourth or fifth person who has said, it was just like he had eyes in the back of his head everywhere. Yeah. And it, and if he asked you a question, him and Coach Guffage, if they asked you a question, they already knew the answer. So if you lie, there were consequences. Did you lie? Never. <laughs> I was I was too afraid. I was too afraid because, you know, back home, my father was 6'6". Six, six. 300 pounds. I'm just a 210 pound freshman, you know, and then coach Smith, I'm telling you to the day he passed away, I would go in his office and I was still intimidated by coach Smith. That's how it was. It was like this awe that was around him that it just made me nervous. Right. His presence was pretty darn impeccable. Yes. So you know that this entire podcast is about turning obstacles into opportunities. What is the biggest obstacle in any aspect of your life that you've been able to turn into an opportunity? I think, you know, coming up, parents being divorced, single upbringing, to be able to come from where I came from in a small town, not a lot of media, not a lot of people to look up to me in, you know, in, in bigger cities, there's, there's opportunities where athletes are come out and be successful. I think the time, you know, when I was coming to Roanoke, you know, I was the first player to play in the NBA. I was the first family member in my household to go to college and graduate. So I think that was my obstacle being the only son with three sisters you know, I had a few, I had some cousins that were, that were, that were males, but, you know, my father didn't go to college. My stepfather went to a junior college. So I had a little bit of guidance, but I didn't have that one person where I was trying to go that I could talk to and ask questions. Like my son, 
my sons and my daughter have both, you know, my wife and myself who both went to college, my son who wants to be, go to college and play basketball. I can share with, with, with him, you know, some of the obstacles that are make it a little bit easier for him. You know, my son was able to go to SMU. My oldest boy was able to go to SMU and play two years of college football. So I didn't have those opportunities. I didn't have that guidance. Right, right. Do the boys listen to you when you talk to them about their sport, their sports program opposed to what you went through? I'm just dead. I think I was still playing professionally with my oldest, you know, till he was about 10 or 11. So that was a little bit different. So he got to see that part of it. But with my daughter and my youngest, you know, I was done. You know, I was trying to coach. And now they get to experience when I go back to Chapel Hill and they see some of the accomplishments, pictures on the wall of me and hear about people talk about the things that we accomplished as a college athlete on on campus. So they get to see that part. But uh, do they listen to me? I think they listen to me, but they don't let me know they listening to me. They'll let you know in a few years. <laughs> let, let me know yeah. when they come back and say, hey, dad, you're right. So I want to talk to you about your foundation. I have to say, when we first met, you enlightened me on so many things that I didn't know. We started our conversation off by you telling me that a lot of the tuition doesn't cover just the normal things that athletes need in athletic scholarships. And so I just, I really want our listeners to know and understand um, what's been going on with you for the last couple of years and trying to get funds and and technology and devices into these players' hands. But I want you to go into some of the, no, I don't I don't so much care about the detail as far as the numbers, meaning the metrics, but just like, hey, you know, some players don't have technology and this is what it looks like. So if you can kind of run it down for us on what a tuition for a student athlete means at some of the colleges that you serve and what's been working well and what overall are you looking for for the future? Three years ago, I had an opportunity to coach at a D2 school in Atlanta, historically black college, Clark, Atlanta. And a lot of times those schools, historically black colleges, there's 107 of them throughout the country, uh, mostly in the South. The one I was at, at Clark, Atlanta, you know, they had Morehouse Spellman and then Morris Brown just received their accreditations to open back up. But a lot of those schools are in the South. They don't have big athletic programs. They don't have a lot of high network individuals who have attended those schools. And it costs a lot to run a university. And a lot of people don't understand that. These students, at least at Clark, are first time um, generational students in their families. They don't have the support on high net worth individuals to send them assistance. At least a lot of the students that I come across while I was at Clark were need-based financial aid students. A lot of my, majority of my athletes were definitely need-based, were having assistance through Pell Grant and financial aid. And some of the challenges we had was, you know, you have a, athletic department that doesn't play in a big conference. You know, the ACC, I think I heard one time years ago that being a part of the ACC conference, you get a $40 million check to start the year for your athletic programs. And I'm sure that's still not enough 
that's not enough for those programs. But they also have the TV deals. The, you know, they get to play in the NCAA tournament. Other ways to generate funds. They have support and boosters and donors who who love their student athletes, so they're able to raise money. But at these HB historically black colleges, a lot of it is dependent on what the government decides to shell out or share with um, black colleges. So while there, you know, a few of my challenges, especially when COVID hit the technical divide, I had nine student athletes out of my 13 that didn't have laptops to continue their education when they were sent home from campus. Because a lot of times they would go write their papers in the, in the lab on campus or they would borrow, borrow a friend's computer or girlfriend's computer and they were able to finish their schoolwork. So I started a nonprofit to help assist my student athletes and other student athletes across the country. It's not, it wasn't just for Clark. It was, you know, we've, we've given laptops and computers to Grambling, to North Carolina A&T, to Clark, Morehouse, Spelman, probably about 25 of the 107 HBCUs we've been able to hit, help Florida Memorial, you know, all up and down the East Coast. So we, we just wanted to level the playing field. You know, Steph Curry, you know, did a great job of giving to Howard to start their golf program. I think recently J.R. Smith just decided that he was going to go back to school and he was a Tar Heel. He signed to be a Tar Heel, but ended up making a jump to the NBA. I mean, I think it's great. I wish he would have decided to go back to Chapel Hill and finish his education, but I think it's great that uh, guys are considering HBCUs as an alternative for their education. So, George, when you were talking to me about this, I was blown away because when people hear scholarship or when people hear athletic scholarship or when people hear signed with, I, after you and I sat down, I actually talked to probably 10 or 15 people and I asked them, I sat down with them and I said, hey, what is an athletic scholarship? And basically they said, you know, all living expenses, all travel expenses, all food expenses, all book expenses, you know, all technology expenses. And they were kind of rattling off in different cultures, different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic groups, not just one sort of, you know, high wealth or, or low wealth, just really kind of everybody. And they were stunned that people are playing for a school and didn't have the actual technology to get through school. But then I remember the thing that really sat with me and actually moved my heart a lot was when you told me now all of these students are going back and more than half of these students don't even have Wi-Fi or connectivity in their own home. That was mind-blowing in 2020 that they didn't possibly have the funds for even internet in their home. Right. It varies depending on what city. If you got a kid that lives in New York, the cost of living in New York is totally different than the cost of living in Southern Alabama. So for a parent in New York to send their kids some money to live on a college campus is stretching them. And, you know, I think at Clark, it might have been 38, 39,000 just to go to school. And that didn't include books. You know, I had a student athlete because the athletic department had a shortfall that went half a semester without books. And he was supposedly been a full scholarship athlete and didn't have books. And I'm like, hold on, how are you going to be on scholarship and we can't get him books? Right. And then to your point, most times this is the first child to attend a college. 
So the parents don't even know the right questions to ask. And they hear scholarship and they're like, you're going because this is a great opportunity. They don't read, re they don't realize the secondary cost. I was blown away when you said some of them didn't even have books. Right. And, 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 and I'm sure like, you know, the, the PWIs, predominantly white institutions who has the big athletic funds. Majority of the times, those students aren't going without books. We just talking about a lot of times the students that are HBCU, who, where the school doesn't have funding. I had challenges with housing while I was at my institution. And for me and my assistant to bring in a kid's second semester, that was the challenge. Even when I was with my own students that was on the team, I said, look, we coming back in December. I got this many students that need housing that lives on campus. And they were still not able to meet those goals. You know, my students would have to go another two or three weeks before they got into their house. You know, that would never happen at Chapel Hill. Right, right. And so what did you, so George, what did you do? How did you handle that? So like if they had- Well, it was left, it was left up to the students. I mean, they, they either stayed on, slept on a teammate's couch. If that was happening in Chapel Hill, they would have had- You're you like, know, heads would roll. I, I say the word. <laughs> Yeah, heads would roll. <laughs> heads would roll. Right heads would roll on campus, yes. But, and, and those are the challenges because a lot of times some of these HBCUs are under-resourced. They don't have the funds to hire the right staff to make all the preparations. And it was it was challenging. It, it's funny because, you know, before I took the job, I talked to Coach Williams and he said, don't take the job because it's more fundraising than it is coaching. And that way, and he was, he was, he was true, but I wanted to take the job because you wanted to make an impact. I wanted to make an impact. And there was the first school that gave me an opportunity to be a head coach. Gosh, that's just, I think about it. You know, we, we've talked about this before. I, I love learning new things and being a constant and curious student, like constantly. And just to know that there are programs that are so underfunded that are happening right here in the U.S. You know, we all tend to kind of think about things that are not happening inside the U.S. We look at outward things, but we don't look in our own community. And to think about these athletes, like you said, like Coach Smith, like heads would roll. But how many people don't even know about these other schools that are in this sort of distress? How many people don't even have the awareness around, around this? Again, George, I polled probably eight to 10 people and they all said, Steph, are you sure you got that right? Like, are you sure? Because we've never heard of anything like that. And these were all former athletes. And, and, and the thing is, so and a lot of times these HBCUs, they're very proudful. So they don't want to put that information out there. And, and I was getting flagged even because when I was out trying to gain support, I would air that dirty laundry. And I got in trouble with the AD because they didn't want to talk about it. But I'm like, if people don't know, how they know to support you? Exactly. Exactly. And if they don't so know, was, how can they change was, the problem? Right. And I was always in that gray area. How much information do I tell? And, you know, because I got student athletes behind me, like, coach, you're supposed to be helping us. So... Has it gotten any better at all? I mean, obviously, we're still in COVID. I know people are starting to return. I know some schools are starting to return. Has it gotten any better? And what are you guys looking at for, you know, the next quarter of 2021 and 2022? Like, what would, what, what are some goals that you have? So we pivoted several times because HBC Heroes, we're a nonprofit. We, we're a small nonprofit. We're not like 
United Negro College Fund. So what we do now is not only just student athletes, but any student at an HBCU or disadvantaged. And it, and when you see HBCU, people think it's only black students. There's Hispanics, there's Asians, there's white students, all attend HBCU. So we, what we, we try to do, we try to help with government. We, we try to help with grants and scholarships to help pay for application fee. We help pay for books, whatever the need is. That's what we're there for. So right now we're trying to help introduce students to corporate internships and job opportunities because a lot of students are graduating, you know, with COVID, they didn't have that same opportunity to get out and get in front of people. And it was, it was the last two years have been different. So we do, we do a career fest every second Friday of the month. I think this one coming up would be September the 10th. Uh, we're looking for sponsors. We're looking for sponsors that will that we can give prizes and things away for students to help them pay for their books, to help them pay for the transportation to campus. They might have a shortfall of, okay, if I pay for my application fee, I might need a meal plan, different things, whatever it may be that the PWIs or the students who have both parents in their home, who have great jobs, their parents can help their students. A lot of times students, even on, on PWI campuses, there's all, there are students who, you know, they got two or three jobs. They try to make ends meet so they can get their education. So that happens a lot at, at, at these schools. And that's what HBCU Heroes is for. So we're going we're gonna to do a link to all of the information for people who want to find out more, but tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, your story, and the foundation. We're on all the social media platforms, HBCU Heroes, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok channel. If you go on our TikTok, all the students on the TikTok are student ambassadors. They attend HBCUs. You will find some of the brightest students, most engaging students, and students who are proudful of their HBCUs. And on TikTok, are you dancing on there? I'm not dancing personally because I, I can't dance. I mean, well. I want to see that. I want that TikTok. <laughs> uh, I might have to have a few drinks. And I can arrange that. No problem. <laughs> I'll consider that a date. Okay, so I have a few more questions that are rapid fire funny questions for you. You have managed, and I have done a ton of research about this, you have managed to really, really stay out of any chaos and drama and any kind of just you know, Aaron judgments, if you will, through your NBA career. How did you do that? Well, I got a few little skeletons, but you just try to be uh, respectful. I've been married for 25 years, so I have to give that a little bit of credit that my wife kept me in line. And she still likes um, you, which is, I and mean... she still likes me. That's... Well, it depends on when you ask. It depends <laughs> on when you ask. You know, I, I've learned. I've learned to give her her space and me have my space. But, uh, you know, I've, I've always felt that I was not only representing myself as an individual, I was representing my family. I'm representing the University of North Carolina. God bless his soul. I was representing Dean Smith. And I'm representing my high school coach. And I've, I've always taken pride in that, that when I'm uh, rounding about, you know, I got my kids with me all the time. They keep me grounded. 
that I've always tried to be a, a role model. That's pretty much kept me uh, grounded. How's your relationship with your mom and dad now? Well, my dad passed away about five years ago. My mom and I, we, we have a good, great relationship. I moved back to North Carolina so I could be a little bit closer to her. And, you know, so I try to get up to Virginia as much as possible this year. What's your biggest regret thus far? You know, it's, it's tough. You know, when, you, when you're an athlete, your job asks you to be away and playing professional basketball half the year, you, you're not home. And, and for probably half my son's life, my oldest boy, dad was out working and playing basketball and providing the lifestyle that we have. So I try to make sure with my other two, Mia and Santana, that I try to be around as much as possible. That's great advice. Okay, and lastly, if you had to choose one person to play against now that you never had the opportunity to play against, who would it be? Wilt Chamberlain. I would love really? to watch him play. Yeah, he's – we, we played two different positions, but I would, I would have loved to have been his teammate because he – he did it all. He could rebound. He could pass. He shared the ball. He was a post presence. And uh, he would have made my job a lot easier. That's amazing. Wow, that's that's great. George, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Spin It. We really, really appreciate it. And we look forward to chatting with you again real soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.